on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I've often said that for me to be queer is to question and that it's not so much about who I love, it's how I love. And for me, how I love means how much of myself or life can I hold without that kind of ignorance or aversion to life itself or those parts of me. So how I love is more about uh, including more and more in my love, in my sense of self, um, in my sense of what I might deem possible. If I don't see queerness as my sexuality, it's in some way a philosophical stance. Um, And it was really the intersection of a Venn diagram between one side being my identity and the other side being curiosity and living the questions. And where I'm, I'm willing actually to hold my identity to those questions where my identity itself and who I see myself to be itself is one way that I framed it, which feels really alive and helps me feel and be open to vitality and eros and the aliveness of all things. What does it mean to be a man today? And what is masculinity reclaimed from the toxic paradigm of domination and empire? In an era defined by polarized conflict and existential uncertainty, How can we draw upon ancient and emerging mythologies to navigate the terrain of imaginal possibility? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are once again realigning masculinity with thriving life. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is my friend, Al Jeffrey, an integrative psychotherapist, meditation guide, and regenerative leadership practitioner. He is also a conscious explorer of queerness and masculinity. In this episode, Al shares his journey, unlocking the potential and power of queerness as an aspirational approach to love. He speaks of queerness as identity and as orientation, and how it intersects with living life fully in oneself. We also touch upon what it means to create inclusive spaces for men to explore these topics, as well as uncover hidden norms that often prevent true depth from occurring. And finally, We explore how each moment carries the seed of remaking a culture of possibility and the inherent risk and reward of leaning into the mystery of being. A reminder that The Mythic Masculine is now on Substack. You are welcome to become a free subscriber and gain access to all public posts and episodes. If you're financially abundant, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month. This supports me to continue the many hours of effort it takes to research and produce each episode. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive posts, episode transcripts, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Al Jeffrey. Welcome, Al, to the show. Thank you, Ian. What a gift to be here and sharing another conversation. This time our first... Mm. Yeah, podcast of many. I love to invite my guests to speak a little of where they are in this moment, mm. geographically, spiritually, physically. Yeah, whatever feels to to allow the listener to tune mm. in to you in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I feel my self, my psyche, my soul in many ways, or maybe not my soul, just soul themselves beginning to unfurl and unfold again after 
uh, many months of instability in my my nesting and home situation of just landed in a new new home with my partner and and my dog and and feeling what I've always known to be my natural inclinations towards gathering, towards sitting and contemplation, towards creation and writing. I guess all these things subdued for a while as my nest felt unstable and there were other concerns more around survival and, yeah, very different register that I was living in. And so it's been really beautiful noticing now just quite naturally as the nest firms up and this sense of safety in my physical place and life becomes more reliable, just these natural parts of me that actually bring a lot of vitality to my life just starting to emerge again. And I just get to catch glimpses of them as they kind of reawaken and it's almost like I forgot that they were there after so long. Um, so I'm getting to meet them again. So that feels like a really beautiful, yeah, part of my current experience to acknowledge. I'm recalling, or I'm, I'm attempting to recall, the first time we made contact, and I believe, I, I remember seeing a video, it was you in the forest, I think, and you were, you know, younger than you certainly are now, fresh, a little fresher uh-huh. faced, less less facial hair, perhaps, and, and you were kind of walking through the forest, kind of like channeling some riff on, I mean, something interesting, uh-huh. I remember. And that, I think, caught my eye, and then somehow, right, we, we were in touch for some reason, and... I was coming down to Australia, I believe, for, I think it was 2016, is that right? Mm-hmm. For uh, a tour, I was giving some some series of talks at uh, different festivals, and you yourself were on the circuit, and yeah, somehow we just ended up traveling together for a couple mm-hmm. weeks, right? Mm-hmm. I think off and on there, and uh, yeah, what a delight. I was so appreciate you know that time, and tracking what you've been tracking down there, mm-hmm. uh, down under, and of course, many of the same themes of yeah, what does it take to build community and culture and then into men's work? And yeah, I've definitely felt this kinship, you know, mm. from from afar. And and I'm curious in your own journey, how remembering even that kid, you know, fresh faced in the forest, mm-hmm. you know, to now as well, it feels like, again, you've undergone quite a quite a transformation, too. And I wonder how that might. Yeah, we might go there to hear a little mm. bit of, you know, as you think back then, I guess about eight years mm. now. And, and, you know, what you thought then about the world and, you know, wh- where you were at and then to now, it feels like you've sort of been steeped and tempered mm-hmm. in ways that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into now and, and more so as the conversation goes on. Yeah. 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 And I'm glad that you, I guess you brought those the beginnings of our relationship to the space. I always have many fond memories and I actually have a photo, I think, of us with my previous partner and my first ever male partner on a log in a forest where I grew up, where we Mm. went for a walkabouts once. And it's a very special pocket of time where I really felt my, my world and possibility was opening up and, and we're sharing that together. Um, So yeah, I look forward to exploring Mm. and in my own reflection, using this as an opportunity to just articulate maybe some of those, those shifts and tracks that have been trodden since then. Yeah. And it's definitely a very distinct chapter of my life. Yeah, I mean, well, I'd say one, what was your inquiry then that you felt, you know, you because it felt like you were, you were lit up clearly with, you know, the, the seeds of possibility in mm-hmm. a way. And and what, what were they, as you're recalling now, and how has that shifted for you over time mm-hmm. as you've maybe attempted a lot of these things to build community, to, to gather people in meaningful ways, to lean into queer culture or queer identity? You know, what, what 
kind of like you know once one goes through the actual attempts of these things and then you know it's sort of weathered returns to tell the tales mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'd just be curious to start off with yeah maybe a few of those threads. yeah yeah i'd say some somewhat archetypally the the meta themes feel very similar really about cultural restoration regeneration and back then i think the video you were talking about of me walking through the forest was me talking about flow or flow states and back then that was my language and way of talking about one actually living in integrity with the deepest call and whisper of their truest, most widest identity. So now I know I use very different language because I have been tempered in different ways and I articulate my life in different ways. But the meta themes of human potential and cultural regeneration are kind of the same. And there would be two aspects of what I would say I'm most interested and curious about. And the intersection between, I guess, personal and collective flourishing in service of ecological flourishing. So I'd say the themes and the threads that I'm pulling are very similar. It's just that, of course, and as I'd hoped, they've become a little more nuanced and a little bit more focused. And so now I am very focused on the intersection between, I guess, psychosocial, spiritual development, quite specifically, and the way that shows up in our relationships day to day as a way of reframing, reconstructing culture and imagination. Back then, I guess I was just a lot more broad stroke and experimenting and exploring. Mm. But I'd say the underlying curiosities and behind the curiosity, confusion and pain was very much the same. Well, let's talk about perhaps a journey that's included confusion, pain, also probably passion and love is your own journey with queer or queer identity. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the intersection of masculinity as well, which again, I think will be the overall focus of this conversation. But I'd be curious to hear how you initially began exploring this question, you know, personally with yourself and in Mm -hmm. your relationships, you mentioned, you know, former partner, your first male partner, and how, yeah, before we get too far along, how may have changed for you over time Mm -hmm. the taking that on the sense of queer what did that mean to you then Mm -hmm. yeah it's a great question and as i shared earlier i i feel very much steeped in the question and there's a real vulnerability to it and fragility and rawness to this very question for me right now just been going through a three three to four month group therapy training which of course means just being steeped in group therapy every week for three hours and of course it stirs and has brought up many questions about social identity and yeah so I just kind of wanted to to flag that in the beginning but maybe my my sexual identity and I've always been attracted to to men and sometimes women of female bodies as well and have had relationships with women. But this whole journey beginning at about 12 began with a lot of confusion, a lot of contempt when I guess what felt so true for me on the inside felt somehow incredibly wrong on the outside, you know, the reflections that I get from the world outside. And so something felt um, incredibly hard to reconcile and incredibly scary to, of Mm. course, venture into. I feel very lucky that I had a sensei and was training in martial arts very keenly and at the same time started to venture into Buddhist practice and so was able to, I guess, transfigure that contempt into curiosity or that angst into a kind of activism. 
but it was still very much a silent inward journey for me and very lonely. Would you speak about how, how did you receive contempt or, or reflections of contempt? You know, again, I might have ideas mm-hmm. or there might be sort of cliches, but yeah, I'd be curious how it was for you. Like, how do you got that message? Yeah. You're like, as you began to say, Hey, wow, maybe I had, you know, I felt attraction for man. How did you receive like, no, that's not okay. Mm. Yes. Mostly because I wasn't at all outward in my expression. It's mostly picking up for me how these things are joked about in culture the word fag or faggot, how not okay or how actually it was a used as a, a way to put others down to say, oh, I wonder out of all of us who's going to be a fag when we grow up or who's just these terms that wouldn't be addressed at me, but of course I would hear them differently when they were addressed at others around me. And then, yeah, there were things that were obviously addressed at me as well when I wouldn't have a girlfriend or wouldn't have a romantic partner for a number of years. And there'd be a question of you're not gay, are you? And of course that's incredibly loaded. And where am I to go with that? And so there are things that are very implicit that of course, someone who lives in the subjectivity of a a kind of queerness or non-heteronormativity hears them very differently, feels them very differently. Um, and it takes enormous courage to, as in any minoritized group, to be the canary in the coal mine that actually is able to step up and say, actually, I'm not okay with how that was said. And at the same time, of course, it's no one's fault mm-hmm. necessarily because our culture is as such. But it's just those constant kind of implicit transgressions of one's identity, which is non-normative, that just can compound the sense of not okayness. Mm. Thank you. When did you hear the term queer? I mean, maybe not specific to the day and the mm. hour, but like, was it, was it hovering around, you know, at the time, maybe in your youth or did, was it something that, you know, became more distinctive, distinguished later of like, Oh, now it has this identity that I can, mm. you know, really maybe uphold or stand behind or yeah. I'd be curious to know. about Yeah. That. It really wasn't until, it definitely wasn't in my teenage years. It wasn't when we met either. It was really only about five years ago, I would say, when I'd heard this word. And this is something I am reflecting a lot on now because I guess in this era of the identity politic, queerness is something that I've noticed in myself. I can use as both a barrier and also something that seeks attention. So queerness becomes this thing that here we are having a a chat about it to understand it because it is a bit aloof, yet many, including myself, identify as it. And so it's something that calls for attention, but at the same time holds up this guard and says, you actually don't know what it's about. So can you know me, but back off at the same time? Yeah, that feels really vulnerable for me to actually understand that maybe part of my using of queerness as an identity is part of my defense. And what's beneath it is actually Mm -hmm. the vulnerability of being gay. And it's really hard to just front up and say, you know what, I am gay. And so many will say, I'm bi first before actually claiming I'm gay. Um, And now it's also Mm -hmm. an option to say I'm queer. And it's not as simple as that because for me, queerness has this whole philosophical, ontological background to it as well and a sociopolitical kind of activism to it. But I'm currently in this journey of trying to bracket out what's what and just be really honest with myself. 
because in this era, mm. queerness can also be something like a spiritual bypass. And so it wasn't until, yeah, about five years ago that queerness as an option came up for me. And, and I know in myself there was a complete flight and almost a reaction towards claiming it because it gave me something else to stand on and in some ways hide behind. Yeah, so I'm currently really trying to sift through the truth in queerness for me as a sociopolitical, philosophical position because I really do believe in that as well. And also, who is it in me that still isn't actually being acknowledged by the world because I'm protecting it? Well, I feel the, yeah, I feel the vulnerability in that. Thank you for, for speaking that. And, and I also feel the, the sense of shelter that can come when there's yeah, some, some identity or a shield, as you say, as well, to, to help define mm. oneself, right? As, as not only... I mean, this is the irony even of the term queer, because queer, you know, maybe on its own tends to mean like apart from the norm, mm-hmm. right? Different from the norm. And so, of course, I don't think that's, it's not a out of the ordinary thing that different marginalized groups with different marginalized identities end up taking a word back, mm. t- like take, quote, taking the power back from the word that usually was meant to, you know, ostracize or belittle, and then turn it around and say, actually, no, we're going to claim mm-hmm. it, and we're going to, you know, find our power in that. And so I think that's also part of the, the sort of political dimension of queer. Now, to bookmark your own journey with it, I'm curious if just laying out the sort of ecosystem or the colloquial understanding for folks, mm. if, so for example, you know, let's say men go to a, you know, men's circle and they say it's queer friendly, right? Or somebody even asks, is this queer friendly? Mm-hmm. Right? Like what, what do they typically mean when they ask for that? And maybe after that, I'll just ask, and so, because what are the kinds of behaviors that make a space not queer mm-hmm. friendly mm-hmm. with that understanding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, when someone says, is this queer friendly? Yes, I'm always looking for the subtext. What's not said? What's not being said? And when I hear someone say, is this queer friendly? What I think is actually being said is, will all the parts of me that are non-normative or typically maybe ostracized or minoritized in our dominant cultural discourse and way of being, will they be acknowledged and held with reverence and sanctity here? Mm. Or will I receive more implicit transgressions for the parts of me that are so vulnerable but are actually required in order for me to become myself, which I think is the very reason we're here to sit in circle. And so that's what I hear, and I guess that's what I'm looking for, and that's what I hope to hold in the spaces that I hold as well, is a space where all of those parts that were perverse or or seen or treated or spoken as perverse or other or queer, not okay, can be brought into the space because that's what I feel like many of these spaces are that we sit in, spaces to court, as Martin Shaw would say, the wild other back into self and our very identities and ways of being in the world. And if the wild other has been othered for cultural reasons, then how, as little microcosms of culture in circles, how can we create new cultures in order to create new selves? And Mm -hmm. these transgressions need to be brought, need to be illuminated if we are to do that. And so that's how I see it. And that has been part of my experience in sitting in men's circles for a number of years is in the beginning just feeling this frustrating contradiction 
um, like, wait a minute, I thought we're here actually to explore whole humanhoods and wholeness. Uh, and there's a big part of me that feels incredibly important for me to, to come into my wholeness here. And I imagine all of us have this otherness inside of us, whether it's around sexuality, whether it's around something else, there is this wild other. And if we're not creating spaces for those parts of ourselves to be expressed, then I'm not quite sure what we're doing. It feels like there's actually a very, very clear ceiling to the amount of integration that can happen in these spaces. So how would you describe, or maybe some experiences you've, you've had where you were in a space and you're like, oh, that, you know, that felt off or, oh, okay, that shows me that yeah, there's a certain pervasive normativity being imposed, most likely unbeknownst, mm-hmm. right? To, to, this is the thing, right? The sort of the unconscious impositions, right? Of a certain way of being or, or way not mm-hmm. to be. And yeah, I'm just curious to some of the specific examples even you've experienced in Circle where that was clear for you. Yeah. Um... A very clear one is when there's no space for other forms of relationship in men's groups, when all examples of when a man falls in in love, she is always, when a man, there's just these constant setting up of normativities around a man, of course, if he falls in love, it is with a woman. And there's no space for otherness or questioning around that, which I guess in uh, spaces of, of inclusivity or diversity and inclusion using inclusive language which is more open to say when a man falls in love whoever that may be with so you're really not foreclosing the possibility or the, the norm around who that ought to be with or is that's a very clear one and mm. i guess in all minoritized groups and again i feel like there's something in all of us, we become incredibly sensitive and attuned to those transgressions. Our nervous system is absolutely wired towards threat, socially and physically. And so they're very loud, those transgressions. And the amount of times that you hear them in my nervous system, it really does feel just like this kind of chunking back down and this drop in my body to say, okay, it's even more not okay here. It's even more not okay here. And eventually you just end up in this silent kind of powerless, yeah, just feels like a, yeah, a pool of, of helplessness and hopelessness and really is a kind of, a kind of trauma response. Mm. So it's really in those examples that set up implicit norms. And if they're not open enough to include other ways of being than those who either are exploring or do exist in those ways of being, it was simply just compound that felt sense of it's not okay here. Thank you for that. I'm curious to ask about another examples or, or ways that I often see as a kind of lunge at aggression. Mm-hmm. Right. I say this in some ways because I do feel in a lot of men's work, maybe particularly to the West, but you know, maybe is also elsewhere, but there's this setup often between the domesticated self and, you know, the, the wild man, right? That's sort of often typical in these kind of groups. And so for a lot of men, they actually don't have many examples of healthy aggression mm-hmm. or, or they're men who are often stifle themselves and, you know, hold back and, and repress and suppress. And so there's this often I find a, a joy really for men to be 
able, quote, you know, encouraged in a way to be aggressive with each other. And I don't mean hostile or like fighting, of course, right? But I just mean, you know, this kind of, you know, wild man bravado, you know, can really come out. And and, then some, and sometimes in me as well, I mean, I, I can appreciate that too. And other times too, I'm, I feel this, yeah, there's again, a kind of implicit normativity around, you know, real men need to be real men, like this this kind of uh, false setup, right? That that often shows itself a lot. And it's this kind of, you know, anti-feminine vibe, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it depends on the group you're in, of course. You know, some, of course, have a lot of, you know, emotional process inclusion. And, you know, they, so they, they do try to work on that. But at the same time, I often find these threads in, in groups where there's this, men just need to be men again. And, you know, stop being so feminized. And these kind of you know, soapboxes get set uh-huh. up often in men's circles. And so for me too, I'm always wondering again, like what what is banished from the room with that kind of, feels like what almost like a, like a rally to some kind of valiant nobility. Uh-huh. That's kind of what it seems to be on the surface. And yet whenever I hear that kind of thing, I typically detect from the speaker often a, a sort of their own sense of feeling threatened. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right by by a certain receptivity to men in particular, or a certain softness with mm. men, and I wonder how you experience mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I experience it as I mean culturally, just this flip and this volatility from one side of the the dichotomy to the other. We have been through this phase where men are ex- uh, expected to be highly sensitive and to develop emotional intelligence and. At the same time, now we're flipping back to we're losing our power. And so we need to reclaim this strength and um, that sense of masculinity. And so I feel like we're, we're kind of flipping back to the other side and we're struggling as a culture and as a person, as a people to actually reconcile how to integrate both healthily within an individual and how to then experience that healthily as a culture. Um, I'm sitting in a circle a couple of weeks ago, non, a non-gendered group, so heterogeneous group. And it was a fascinating exploration between the women or female identifying people in the group and the men because there were a number of men who were incredibly frustrated and confused because their partners who were women on one hand, say, I want to be protected by a man. And at the same time, I want you to be sensitive and to be able to hold me in deep emotion and the unknown and ambivalence. And so these men were just incredibly confused and trapped. Like, what the fuck am I to do? You're wanting me to be this very strong, protective man who's got your back at all times at the same time and is willing to stand for you and will do anything to, to protect you from the world. And at the same time, I need to be incredibly gentle and soft and I think that's the very point of a lot of this work. And for me, that just speaks to wholeness. And what we're actually talking about here is, is integration. And for me, that, that is a part of queerness as an ideology for me, is I guess to live in and hold and bear and body what Michael Mead would say is the tension of opposites, to be able to live in that very contradiction and not need to resolve it to either side, but instead let the tension grow something, temper something. And yeah, I guess that's how I experience those moments is it takes a lot of capacity to hold the contradiction and to hold the dissonance in one's body Mm. in the face of contradiction. And so as a culture and as a people, how do we actually create the whether it's the regulatory, whether it's the imaginal, whether it's the social capacity to actually body dissonance in that way. 
in the hope and with the prayer that maybe something that's a little more inclusive can birth from that. Well, it strikes me that queer, and this is something that you, I believe, talked about in the past. It's something in my own research as well, trying to understand that queer can be understood as a verb, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it can be understood as an identity for certainly as a label, but also as a verb. And so if I wonder, if I turn it into a verb, of course, to queer, Mm -hmm. right? It's maybe one way. I also, I wrote down, you know, just thinking about it, it's, it's, it's another way of saying to wonder, it seems to me, mm-hmm. right? It's like to wonder about stuff, right? Let's just, so let's wonder about masculinity, yeah. you know, in an in a intentional way and release certainty around masculinity should be this or it should be that, for example. And I wonder what you think about that <laughs> as queer, as, as a place to wonder, as a way of wondering. Yeah, I love that framing. I've often said that for me to be queer is to question, like this kind of query and that it's not so much about who I love, it's how I love. And for me, how I love means how much of myself or life can I hold without that kind of ignorance or aversion to life itself or those parts of me. So how I love is more about uh, including more and more in my love, in my sense of self, um, in my sense of what I might deem possible. Initially, when I was trying to articulate my sense of what it means for me beyond sexuality, which is actually not how I see it for myself. I don't see queerness as my sexuality. It's in some way a philosophical stance. Um, And it was really the intersection of a Venn diagram between one side being my identity and the other side being curiosity and living the questions. And where I'm, I'm willing actually to hold my identity to those questions where my identity itself and who I see myself to be itself is one way that I framed it, which feels really alive and helps me feel and be open to vitality and eros and the aliveness of all things. And so it is very much living as a verb as well. David White would say to live as a question, not as a stem, and therefore restore ourselves and plant ourselves back in the living world. Mm. I so appreciate that. And it strikes me to wonder what have you learned from exploring from loving in this way? Mm. Like what have you learned about loving women and what have you learned about loving men mm-hmm. and loving the earth? Like from, from this, you know, willingness mm. really to, to dare to be in the question and the exploration. It's mm. mm. a big question, Ian. <laughs> You'll, um, Hmm. The first word that comes to me is, is absolute risk. And yeah, I can feel the flutteriness just in my chest, even thinking about what it actually means and takes to attempt to love in that way, whether one reaches that position or place or not. The attempt to constantly have an excursion from oneself into that edge, into that threshold of self and other self and world. Hmm to be deeply curious and hold the self in question at that place where actually myself can be redefined by the encounter as opposed to be reaffirmed is a very, yeah, very vulnerable, raw place to be. And honestly, it's not a place I can be a lot of the time. Like it's, I think that's the thing about queerness for me as well. It's as an aspiration 
which I think is incredibly important in our world today, um, where we seem to have lost the spiritual third, the other, the weaving narrative or the myth um, that offer these aspirational qualities that organize the self and culture towards something. That's part of how I see queerness, as it is an aspirational quality of um, how to live at that intersection between self and world. And so it's not at all something that I claim to be in all the time. But, yeah, maybe the only thing I would say is I've learned that it's fucking risky. Um, and there are many reasons not to. Um, but a lot of them affirm the way things are. And I'm not so sure I'm okay with a lot of that. I, yeah, I appreciate that that affirm, or I think you might have said redefine, like as in those two, mm-hmm. perhaps. And and I also hear you say, yeah, the risk of of really leaning into that is is risky in the sense of, and, and also taxing i hear mm-hmm. like it you know requires a kind of yeah like uh, an effort a labor mm. and i'm thinking of one who understands their sexuality their eroticism as you know pretty clear and, and lab- labeled like i'm hetero mm-hmm. i'm only attracted to women like if someone holds that fixed identity mm. so fixed in a way it's like easier right because it's like they don't have to be at all questioning that mm-hmm. but i think there's an i don't know if it's irony is quite the right word but maybe it's a loss or a poverty I would say there's a poverty there to not allow oneself to to wonder about this, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think oftentimes when I think of the sort of unintegrated erotic that this came up in my conversation with Kai Cheng Tom, who's a trans woman, she spoke about how a lot of the fear of trans or like transphobia, particularly with trans women from heterosexual men, for example, is has this in it, this sense of this unintegrated erotic, right? It's like, oh, if I'm turned on by by this, you know, trans woman, for example, who's quote, actually a man, uh-huh. you know, again, in quotations uh-huh. to, to that worldview, they're, you know, they're they're deceiving me. You know, that's like the man uh-huh. the sense of I'm being deceived and I'm actually feeling somewhat attracted to them. And like, I don't like that because that makes me feel really uncomfortable about the certainty of my uh-huh. own eroticism. And therefore, of course, the unintegrated can often lash out as, ag- as aggression yeah. and othering, sadly. And so I wonder, again, this sense of, the like you're saying, the willingness to lean into this is, is the ability to, yeah, to, it's a put effort towards this, this labor, which has risk and also has reward. And maybe that's a piece, too, that I'm curious to learn of the reward. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it a, um, a lot in men that come to see me as a psychotherapist I tend to work a lot with men um, and men who are in questions of identity and sexuality and a lot of men who come to me who currently identify as hetero but have a lot of trouble feeling alone ashamed and stuck in witnessing and noticing themselves inclinations and attractions towards other men Um, and they might be in a hetero relationship currently where there isn't an openness in communication, there's no um, frame around, I guess, it being okay or even being celebrated to have attractions outside of the the core couple dyad. And so there's just this incredible stuckness um, and flood of shame and confusion. Um, And a lot of our work is, I guess, about starting to peel apart some of these cultural, deeply ingrained, implicit norms and create a sense of safety in these desires and just and then also create some of the relational capacity to hold them in relationship with another 
but I do witness such a rigidity or the um, reactivity that comes from the rigidity where I'll then become angry at myself um, if I haven't found healthy ways to express this anger that comes up, which actually feels related to the shame that comes up, then we just get stuck in these reactivities as opposed to finding an identity that feels wide enough to allow there to be some sense of fluidity. Mm. And of course, it's a tricky balance. And I've experienced it in myself where too much openness can lead to too much chaos, which can also be incredibly destabilizing and dysregulating. And so, of course, there is one of the great dances of discernment in all of this as well, is how can I become not too rigid and also not too fluid? And I guess therein lays queerness as a question to constantly just be checking in the same way that homeostasis is a verb, it's not a place the constant correction against imbalance similarly but at the level of identity um, and how we see ourselves Mm. in the world i would say well as i reflect on this too in my own inquiry into this right that even very specifically for example i still feel the the conditioning i have around physical touch with men Mm. right like certainly i have close friends and and you know when we're together at, you know, music festivals and, and just in a comfortable space, you know, there can be a degree of, of comfort, comfort and ease around physical touch, which I appreciate for sure. And it's not like a go-to in the same way that it would be with a, a woman I trust or my partner who's a woman. And I, again, I realized like there was poverty in that. Mm. And I think there's a huge poverty in that in the, in the West, it seems in general, mm. as a culture that, you know, really tends to keep a strict boundary, right, between male touch that is you know, quote, sexual, sexually infused or, or sort of carrying some kind of invitation, therefore, i.e., oh, you know, now you're in the gay, you know, area, mm-hmm. or it's like, you know, slap the ass at a football game and that's still cool, bro, you know, and this like gulf between that often, right, that, that a lot of men experience. And more recently as well, I've been cultivating space for men in, in, in a immersive environment where that is part of what actually the exploration is actually coming into, I would say, like, sensual nourishing touch with men Mm -hmm. that also doesn't carry some kind of you know possibility of it moving towards sexual at least for this specific container you know that's what we've we've created and and seeing how actually joyful that is for the men Mm. right to to start to develop and for myself and and develop that capacity of yeah feeling nourished Mm -hmm. right with that level of ease and comfort with men and anyway i'd be curious to hear your take as well Mm -hmm. on you know again what are some of the areas in which actually there is this possibility to queer and to be explorers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the word nourishment in all of that. Because I I mean, I feel it in myself as well, this just loneliness in my manhood where there's just this invisible kind of glass pane between myself and other men sometimes and, and feels maybe somehow even more exacerbated because I do relate in the way I do. And for some men, internalized homophobia is the fear of someone who is gay or queer just being open to anything and anyone and so there's this this fear that can become anger and so it feels somehow in at least in my experience possibly amplified slightly i'd say most men in our culture have internalized homophobia and that does mean that there are fears around what it is to be seen being so close, being so sensual. We also have a culture that doesn't have so many discernments. Um, I forget who it was, but a Buddhist teacher said we live in a culture where we 
we lack distinctions. And with a lack of quality distinctions, we end up making brash, generalized, I guess, decisions or movements. And one of those is the distinctions between the different kinds of love, the difference between sensuality and sexuality. Um, Without that distinction, we end up kind of taking everything as meaning a sexual attraction or a sexual movement or act and deprive ourselves, as you said, this poverty of platonic nourishing touch. I think it's incredibly sad that we just don't have that distinction built into our culture. And yeah, it's something that I know I am still working towards and, and constantly working on because it feels like the less time I spend in these cultural biotopes, whether it's music festivals or workshops and things, it's just so quickly seeps back in this notion of this cold, Mm distant masculinity if i was to use that word uh, yeah. and so I, I find it incredibly saddening but every time we've had that experience whether it's in a circle that i'm running or between myself and other male friends there's just such a longing for it and mm-hmm. it's something that i feel has to be both the top down and bottom up we have to have the experience of doing it to know that oh it's actually okay and it's actually really really nourishing and the top-down update of the imagination, where we need these dis- distinctions to be able to make discernment, to be able to trust in the other mm. thinking about this act in the same way. Because part of it is also, I'm not sure how they're thinking about this. And all we're left mm. with is our implicit norms. There's something also about, in friendship groups, explicating certain things and making these things more explicit so that it creates space for all of us to rest into that nourishment without the uh, presupposition of fears. Here's something that comes to me is as I wonder about this and in a way, what are the fears that come up around male sexuality and also what tends to be the, the overall sense, right. Of, of masculine sexuality or male sexuality is predatory, right. As aggressive, as harmful, like these, these tend to be, mm. you know, close at hand whenever there's talk and often from women who, who feel that, right? And of course, Me Too is a, is a massive example of that. Essentially, that masculine sexuality is inherently mm-hmm. transgressive, mm-hmm. right? Or, or tr- inherently trespasses, right? And I'll just give you one example. So I have explored with a man in the past and it was with a friend who, you know, a close friend with another partner. And it was, it was fascinating for me to like consciously move mm. into that space. And I'll feel like there was times when I felt like he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily larger than me per se, but he had a certain hunger, mm. I'll say, right. That was present that in a way had more of a dominant mm-hmm. energy. Right. And, and it was interesting to me to be with a man in a, not in a full like sub role, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't fully that, but more like sensing the level of just, yeah, like ferocity in a way that was behind the the urge or the impulse mm-hmm. in that connection. And it was striking to me to feel almost like, oh, is this dangerous, right? Like it was, it was interesting to touch mm-hmm. that place of, wow, like is this part of that fear, that latent fear of male sexualities as again, tres- tre- as trespassing, as, as, Un- unwilling to adhere to boundary or limit or mm-hmm. contact, right? Which to me is the essence of rape, of course, right? When the other's like, okay, stop, but there's mm-hmm. no stopping, 
right? And so I guess for me as well, like when I think about exploring in men's spaces with even just things like touch, right? Like nourishing touch. There is this, I think, this kind of omnipresent sense of fear actually of of male sexuality mm. as as carrying those qualities inherently. And I wonder what you might mm. say to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't have any formulated sense. I find it curious for me whenever dancing in these spaces of, I guess, male versus female, I... I guess having related and been in many queer spaces where it is same sex, more and more uh, I feel things as actually just human to human. And within all spaces, there are some men that are more predatory, some men that are more submissive. We've all kind of got our role. There have been many times where I've had boundaries um, trespassed and it feels... And so too, I know happens between female identifying people. I'm not sure, and I, I don't know any science or research about this. So I'm um, also just very curious, but I am also always wary of, I guess, defining things as men themselves as a generalized subgroup tend to be more predatory than women because I experience it as, as actually human to human. And yeah, I, I guess I wonder about all of that as well. Thanks for that. And I could clarify even a bit further saying that I, I think though that this is perhaps the judgment that is carried in the culture already, right? Like, because men in general seem to have just a general sense of subtle competition or subtle or not so subtle sense of safety with other men often, right? Like this is, uh, this is a ref- common refrain in men's circles, right? Men will come and say, I don't trust men, right? And so a lot of the willingness to be there in circle initially, right, is this like willingness to lean in and develop that core sense of trust. And it was for me too early on. Like I didn't really know I didn't tr- quote trust men until I was able actually to really confront it. And then, I, you know, I was like, wow, actually that goes deep. And so I think across the board in general, there is a sense too that that male advancement, you know, carries that energy. And if, for, especially for someone who doesn't have experiences, mm. like you're saying, in spaces where there is a plethora of, of expressions of, you know, eroticism and sensuality. And so for men who are maybe hesitant to open that door at all, right, there, there maybe is an initial sense of like, ooh, is this safe, right? Or is this dangerous? Because, you know, they're carrying that unconscious bias already from the culture at large. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm also curious about obviously the impacts of porn and the cultural um, cultural story and imagination around sexual act and sexuality itself and lust. And um, I've been quite fascinated at the in my psychotherapeutic work the development of lust as a core system within um, humans and human bodies and how that happens, I guess, in, in early to mid adolescence and the cultural milieu the social circumstance that's happening around the person as the lust system is developed. So how does lust become compensatory for something else like care or nurturance? And Mm -hmm. it can often be fueled deeply by feelings of disgust, rage, and these systems become quite um, entwined. And that's not just in men. All of us have, and obviously depending on our school, but a lot of high school experiences are really not that nurturing or caring. A lot of high school friendship groups are really not that nurturing and caring. And so as our sexual system is developing, it 
can be um, developed as a, a compensatory or a, um, in some ways, um, a very expressive and regulatory system for a real lack of care and nurturance and safety. And it carries survival energy in that sense. It reminds me of, I think it was a book by the author Robert Masters, I think, of around shadow. And that, yeah, so many of at least his articulations of sexual erotic behaviors, he's like, they're not really about sex. And in a way, I think that's that's what he was getting at as well. Like so often they carry a lot of freight around these mm-hmm. other things kind of unconsciously. And that becomes the, yeah. the vehicle or the vessel until that integrative work mm-hmm. is done. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm struck then curious around your ability to create space is where you can consciously lean into this territory. You know, you mentioned as well that like you facilitate men's space as well as, you know, multi-gender circles. But I'm curious for men in particular, yeah, what are some ways in which you actually do intentionally create either language or or the opportunity and the processes in which to consciously explore mm. these realms? Well, mostly, I mean, through a, a group therapy lens, there will always be a kind of intake call where my attempt as a group leader or facilitator is to firstly enroll and onboard the person into a change-making process to really make sure that they're willing to be warm and involved and engaged in the process, but also to understand just something about what it is they're carrying, what it is they're bringing, um, these vulnerabilities. And there there are many people who are in explorative spaces of identity and sexuality. And so it's never really been the case that it's not necessary to create a space that's open and not kind of echoing or affirming these implicit cultural norms. But a lot of it is in the first kind of forming and norming stage of a group really explicating the things that we have spoken about. So when when sharing stories about your own relationship or if you do go into kind of third-person perspective and talk about others in the world, which we hope not to, but if you do go into that, then let's just be really clear about what we're norming. And so there's a big focus on norms in all the groups that I run because ultimately what we're doing is trying to to also remake culture in these groups. Yes, they, we're here for personal healing, but every group and every single gathering is an opportunity to remake and restore culture. It's a culture-making practice. Culture is based on implicit norms and tacit knowledge. And so as a group leader and also hopefully as a whole group organism, we're keeping each other accountable to operating within the norms that we've set. And it's up to each of us to be really clear about what that looks like. And so it's really in the forming and norming stage at the beginning that a lot of my attention is placed. And as a facilitator, I've always felt that 80% of my work and my effort needs to be in the first couple of sessions or in the first 20% of our time together, because Mm. that really sets these norms, which is, yeah, the absolute cornerstone of all everything that unfolds from there. I'm struck by... And then when you say norm and, and establishing norms, I'm struck by probably how often groups will not know the norms that they've set, right? Like the, again, the, the norms are unconscious. And so to do that work is to surface what are the implicit norms that perhaps we, you know, we haven't questioned. We just, we just assembled, you know, from, from the get-go, let's say if we're talking about a, a men's circle or a men's group. And it seems to me, again, that, that that has to be a conscious process of, wait a second, what have we normed? 
right? And beginning to to surface that and say, okay. But then even getting to the place where perhaps from those norms to to just say like, okay, well, this is actually, this is, this is what we want to actually have for the circle, right? And, and to make, just make that explicit. And so also for men who may be curious to join, if somebody said, hey, is this, um, you know, say queer friendly? And they're like, what do you mean? Right. Or not what do you mean from a place of genuine curiosity, but kind of like, yeah, of course, you know, like, but they haven't done the work actually to understand what does that actually mean to, to be inclusive in that way. And it's not just, you know, use whatever pronoun you want and, and everything's great. Right. Like there's a, there's deeper and more subtle layers often at work. And so, yeah, I appreciate that sense of actually just unearthing those norms and then kind of consciously choosing to, to proceed with that rather than unconsciously. Well, in the spirit of querying and your ongoing dedication to queer querying, I would love to hear what is the edge for you now as this this work and this exploration has shifted and morphed and ebbed and flowed for you. What is that edge for you now in terms of this queer mm. exploration? Um, it is, as I was alluding to earlier, it's really, for me, becoming even clearer on, on where queerness sits for me and its function as something that, yeah, recognizing I was quite quick to kind of move to and to claim and that there's something really true in that. And there's also something that feels like it has a quality of also being a disservice to myself and, and to culture in that sense of it being uh, at times, something that can feel a bit like a, a barrier or a guard as opposed to a real open question. And so I'm really curious about and I'm in quite a process of exploring what what function is it actually playing for me as an identity? When I say I am a queer man, what does that really mean? If it is more of an ontological and philosophical stance, a, a very sincere curiosity in living the questions, then... Does it need to be an identity? Can it be characterological? And and what is it that's that's really trying to be said? And so, yeah, I guess I'm in this, and it feels really raw because I don't have the answers, of course. Um, very alive, and there's a fear of it kind of debasing a lot of the things that I've come to know about myself and claim and um, speak with with quite a bit of provocation. But at the same time, there's something that feels really tender in it because it there's, there's a sense of it actually opening me up to the parts of myself that have still felt guarded behind that identity um, and giving them the opportunity to really feel met and touched and nourished by the world. And so for me, yeah, this edge is really about being even more specific about what queerness actually is um, as a frame, as an ontology, as a philosophy, it feels really important. And it offers for me this aspiration as I spoke about, but just being really clear about that so that it doesn't get caught up in, um, I guess, this moral superiority that can come with this era of identity politics and further fragmentation um, that can come of it as well. Well, I'll appreciate your time today sharing the edges of the exploration mm. for you and in this conversation. And I look forward to the seeds of possibility that we've been circling for some time around 
putting forth perhaps a more of a practical application mm-hmm. of a lot of this exploration for men and men's groups to create a spaces that I think you, you, more than inclusive and really these spaces of deep wonder. Mm. That's what I, that's what I hear or see because the possibilities there and the medicine that could come from that, I think that that's the edge that is part of that whole wholeness. I think that wants to come through mm. to truly tap the imaginal possibilities of men's and the men in these spaces, as well as the, the remaking of culture mm-hmm. in ways that we need on a, on a grander scale. Mm. Yeah, I really, really love that. The, the widening of the possibility for wondering, like how can we really create containers and, and spaces for the, uh, the smoke hole to be open, the possibility, the amount of life that can be contained in those spaces to be, to be deepened and widened. So yeah, I appreciate that, that reframe as well. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to learn more. <laughs>